This recording is a production of the Conservative Anabaptist Education Committee. This presentation was recorded at Conservative Anabaptist School Board Institute 2020, held in Belleville, Pennsylvania, on March 6 and 7. Okay, good morning. I too want to thank you for the questions that you turned in. So now we have the challenge here, of course, of deciding how to best use our time. And so it means that we'll have to prioritize your questions. We put them into some categories, like finances and teacher questions and technology questions. And we'll address them the best that we can, taking roughly about five minutes for each question. And so thank you again for turning in your questions, and we really hope that we um, can answer some of these effectively and deal with some of the issues we're facing. So at this time, thank you very much, uh, brethren, for being willing to answer all these questions, giving your time to this. We'll start with question number one, which is going to deal with finances. We didn't have a lot on the program this year for finance-related issues, and so we're going to take some time here to answer some questions regarding finances. So question number one, what is the best way to fund a school? Tuition, offerings, fundraisers, or a mix? You may respond. Well, I don't know if there is a one best way. I think each community needs to figure out how they want to do that. Um, one thing I would say so far is just offerings versus tuition. We tend to value what we pay for. That's why I'm a proponent of having tuition. Um, if, and I, I'm a proponent of having offerings as well because I think it is a legitimate m mission of the church. If it's totally funded by offerings and assuming that your, what you put in the offering comes out of your tithe, Perhaps that's very handy that the 10% can fund our children's education versus the 90%. So I would have, I do wonder about doing it totally with offerings. I'll make one comment regarding fundraisers. We decided when we started our school that uh, you do teach, there's something called a hidden curriculum, which you teach about what you do. We decided we would not buy cheap and sell exorbitant, so we did not uh, sell uh, candy or candles or pizza or other things that we could buy for X cents and sell for X dollars. Uh, <clears throat> that can unwittingly say that when it's for good cause, you can rip people off. We do have one fundraiser that we do twice a year coming up here in a couple weeks, and that is a sub-sale, and that serves a number of purposes. It actually is the uh, students take orders, but the orders are pretty much patterned. There are businesses, there are typical people they go to, and there are a number of uh, businesses in the area that will post the order form, and the employees look forward to this happening, and a number of them say, be sure to let us know when your next sub-sale is, and they order in Afeng Bulk, 10 here, 12 there, and then the, the subs are made in the evening 
well, actually, some preparation work is done in the afternoon with the students working together, and then the school families show up, and this is a joint project with teachers, parents, and children working together to create uh, a thousand subs. And it makes, so it serves a number of purposes. It's quite the camaraderie of the whole school family together. And it's something that people actually ask about, and they're happy to see it coming up. So that's one thing. With a fundraiser, there are ways, if you do a fundraiser, of achieving a number of goals at the same time. Okay, thank you. Question number two regarding finances. How should we treat delinquent tuition? If it's tuition and delinquent and the family can't produce, it seems a logical way is to send the information to the deacon or treasurer or whoever of the church that they are part of and allow that church to work with it. That's one way. Okay. On this question, because we have nothing really uh, else related to finances, we decided we were gonna open this up to the audience. Does anyone in the audience have a way or an example of how you have dealt with delinquent tuition that you'd like to share? That you think would be beneficial? You never know what for answer you'll get. I remember one time contacting a parent and telling them after several, I had contacted them several times, and I made mention that we would probably need to turn this over to the deacon. And he was like, I am just surprised that you would do that. Because if people found out that the church would pay their tuition, nobody would pay. <laughs> I'm like, what did I just hear? <laughs> okay. And I'm like you, I hardly know how to respond. He's <laughs> assuming people would pay up rather than uh, helping them, the family talk about how they manage their finances. Anyone else? We actually do something similar in our school. It's usually a special situation, a special need, and so it goes to the deacon board since we're a church run school.
Okay. If you all heard that, if, if it may actually come to the place where you, they can no longer be a, pa a patron of your school. All right, did we really deal with your question there, though? Anything about scholarships that anyone has tried? I feel very unprepared to talk about that, but... Yes? Okay. Right. Yep. Thank you. Yes. The recipe for that is Nehemiah 7 for 70 through the end of the chapter. Okay. You prepared to say it by heart? I'll let you describe it. <laughs> Very well. One more time on the reference. Nehemiah 7 for 70 through the end of the chapter. Okay. Uh, I'm still doing a double take. I'm sorry. One more time. Nehemiah 7 verse 70. So is that the, is that the trick? Okay. All right. Nehemiah 70 does actually have 70 verses in it. Okay. <laughs> Question number three. How do we encourage our current students to become teachers? <clears throat> Cause your current teachers to be your current students' heroes. If, if, if our teachers have our students' hearts, that's going to inspire them. If we can model something that they believe is worth emulating, if teachers are their heroes, a difference. We can give them some experience in teaching in various ways. Our young men might even be convinced that it's a valid option, and we can talk to them about that. It's a community effort. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, just being enthusiastic yourself is extremely important, um, and being excited about what you're doing. <coughs> 
invariably will, will pass to the students, and then maybe they'll consider evaluating so to do the same thing. I would underscore the giving them opportunities to do a bit of teaching and encourage them to work with some younger children, help them with homework. That again achieves several goals. It does create cross-generational, not generational perhaps, but cross-age experience of older ones working with younger ones, giving them somebody to look up to and give them a bit of help, a feel of helping the younger child. And we've already had a day in which the older students actually all uh, arrangements were made for them to teach a class in some other, in some cases they paired up to team teach, but at least it gave them the experience. And you never know what gets clicks or what turns off just by a little experience like that. Question number four. <clears throat> How can you avoid long-term teachers burning out? I think probably the most important thing is to be in conversation with them. You ought to know, as administrator or a board, you ought to know how your teacher is feeling. When I say that, I mean feeling about his or her work. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. It's interesting how doing work, doing one's work, can be what gets you out of bed in the morning. If you're doing work that energizes you, you know it, it's what gets you up. It, what, it's what moves you. And sometimes the more challenged, the more active you become. And then there comes a point, there are always some aspects about work that are difficult, that one does not like. But when it gets to the point that you must get up and must go to school, why, then you start to level out and then there comes a point if the work becomes a drain on you emotionally when it affects your sleep or when you're not ready to go back to school, some, some time before that point, and it might take somebody talking with the teacher to actually identify that. Some teachers don't recognize when this has happened to them. But it's important that teachers have people to talk with, other teachers. As a board, you ought to be, teachers are proactive here, make sure your teachers are in contact with other teachers, especially if it's a small school. You can feel very alone. And you ought to, you and the teacher needs to know this and you ought to be able to identify whether the teacher is energized or enervated by his work. And so there are things to do like encouraging uh, them to share, read a book together, uh, take a course, to visit other schools. There are things to do to rejuvenate, to refresh. And sometimes some time off. Uh, personally, I never did a sabbatical, but there were several years that I taught that I was part-time. I remember the first time I had a three-day-a-week year, and it was an experience on those two days, having opportunity to do something different. And the feel 
that I had when I knew that everybody else was going to school and I was doing something different. It was an interesting feeling. <laughs> and sabbaticals, we rarely think of them because we have few people who teach that long. Sabbatical typically is after seven years. And also people do teach that long oftentimes and we can't afford to, we can't find a replacement for sabbatical. But their space, and it's hard to understand if you're not teaching, you wonder, well, don't teachers have a seven sabbatical every summer? I mean, they're only teaching three, four times because they only teach nine months. Well, there's a sense of what's that too. In the fourth for June, June, July, and August, we have much fewer teachers than we do have. But the some time apart can rejuvenate a person and give them also experience in other kinds of work, other kinds of life. I know a teacher some years ago who, by her own volition, had a pattern of teaching three years, and then she did something else for a year. She didn't get a sabbatical from board, she just, she just uh, quit and did something else. But then she came back. If she came to your school, you could expect you'd have her for three years. And she was quite vivacious and energetic and taught very well. And so, in summary, I would say, be in conversation with your teacher. Know how that teacher is feeling. Know the, know the deranged. If there's a particular thing that deranged, oftentimes there's one particular thing that drains a teacher. Say, if you don't come back, or if you're going to quit, what is it about it? Is it the amount of work? Is it the type of work? Is it the students? Is it parent relationships? What is it? Find out what area that is and see how you can address that. And there's some steps you can take. I'm assuming numerous of you are business owners and you have people working for you. It's probably somewhat similar. How do you keep long-term employees? Um, you could probably apply that to teachers. I've taught a few years now. And I mean, eventually it is a job. Uh, it can't be a 24-7 something ministry, if you want to call it that way. Uh, it's going to be sustainable, but what, what do you need for your workers? What uh, keeps them working for you for 20 years? And I suppose if you do the same thing for your teachers, uh, that will help. I, I, after I had taught four years, well, I guess it was after seven years, um, but as I, after I was married and taught for four years, I asked if I asked my church if I could leave for a year to go to Faith Builders. And I was already ordained at that point as well. And it's not like our community has a history of uh, educating their pastors. Uh, so, but since I was ordained, I felt I needed to ask the church before I could take off. And, and I couched it in terms of I probably will teach longer if I can do this. <laughs> and there was tremendous support for it. And so if, if your teacher is feeling like he, doesn't, he or she doesn't really know, doesn't have the tools that they need, they're not gonna last long. And so I think, like I just repeat, I think it's similar to what it takes for your employees. Okay, thank you. Another related question. How can you evaluate whether a teacher's workload is appropriate I think that comes back also to the question, 
to the statement I made earlier about being open with the teacher, teacher and having a conversation with the teacher to find out how much, how many hours a week are you spending, what kinds of things are you, are you giving priority to, what is not being done. Oftentimes there's something on, if there's an overload, oftentimes there's something on that plate that's taking a disproportionate amount of energy. And I didn't say time, but, but energy. And this problem is increasing with the increasing number of special needs students. So there is only there are only so many hours in a day. And there are several things going on currently. Older generations would, it seems, to a fault, spend, just spend the time needed, burn the midnight oil, the morning oil, and take the time to do the work in the families that suffered in many cases. The children did not get the attention they should have. Now there's much more awareness that you know, it's okay to say I need time for my family. And so now we can, that can go the other way. The person can say, I don't have time for this. And so those are some things we're, we're facing. But it's something you need to discuss it, and a person can do what he can, and you can prioritize things and say simply, well, based on the time and the week, this, this is on my plate, but it's not going to happen. I don't, I simply can't do this. And if we're okay with this not happening, well, then, then, uh, we'll, we'll proceed. So, for example, when I say this not happening, maybe you don't have time to work with an individual child, and so unless there's some other help given, that child will fall through the cracks. Or maybe you simply don't have time to check all the papers, and so there's some other things that are not going to be graded. And you just have to be upfront and lay it out in the plate and say, I mean, going back to other kinds of work with a, with a carpenter. You say, well, I have so much time to build this house, or wait, I can't do it all, so you have to decide. Do, do I, at the end of the month, do you, do you want the trim not up, or do you want the uh, bathrooms not finished? Uh, well, at the end of the month, when I walk out of here, what is it that you don't want finished? That's the kind of parallel you might use. The boards can set an expectation for a, a rough amount of hours we expect for does give them a ballpark to work from at least, just to have some kind of, you know, do we expect teachers to work 70 hours, is that normal, or is 50 normal, or 30, what, what are we shooting at? I think it helps some of us feel okay with making those decisions, you know, describing, about whether this or this can, will be done or won't be done. All right, question number six. Is one of the biggest problems with teacher recruiting and retention that we aren't willing to pay them enough? I'm assuming with this question, we're talking about financial remuneration, uh, but I would just insert here, there are, there are other ways to pay as well, uh, but don't take that to mean that other ways make up for financial remuneration. I would remind us that the cost of living is the same for teachers as it is for other people. Our, it, it, we, we 
high emissions. But let's not take advantage of our people for that reason. Our checkbook is a value statement. We're going to spend our money somewhere, probably. Um, we have money for the things that really, really matter to us. We often notice that. It depends maybe whether you're thinking of, of your school teachers being voluntary service members or long term. And you may well have some of both in your school. You may look at it and say, we look at the first two or three years as a bit of a BS, and we're up front with that. If you commit to a more long-term arrangement after that, then we expect to pay you a living wage. One of the things I'm concerned about is that some of us are raising our families on the backs of single ladies. They are paying the price for us and I'll remind us that it's more important, I think, to take care of those people that are married male teachers because most of the time they have children to take care of them when they're older if that would have to happen. Our single lady teachers may have no one. And so you should definitely be in discussion with them about how is this actually working? Is this going to be feasible for you to do this long term? Thank you, Mark. That was a good answer. Any other response to that? I think that, um, yeah, obviously, Mark said it well, it costs the same for a teacher to live as it does for other people, so we have to be realistic with that. Um, it is also a problem. The job can't pay enough if it's not a worthwhile job. But just because it's a worthwhile job, it still has to, we still have to make the finances work. All right, let's move into a different set of questions here. Question number seven. This is relating to the topic on victim mentality. What are victim symptoms that teachers should be aware of? As I mentioned yesterday, statements such as you are, you are attacking me or I feel <clears throat> threatened or shamed normally when a person is disciplined, you hope they accept it as a form of, of correction, correcting their thinking, how they think about something, or addressing the attitude, how they, how they approach something, or what they say about people. Many children today, and this, this is, this is programmed by the culture, by the air which they breathe, so to speak, or around us, they, they, they feel that to suggest that they change something is not, it's not affirming, it's, it's, uh, it's attacking their meaning as a person. And this, this could show up in them simply responding, saying, that they're not safe, but it can also result in, I heard one instance where a student responded to being addressed by one teacher by flattering another teacher, by unduly expressing appreciation to another teacher, and in, in some way undercutting the teacher who was working with her. 
we might note that the student who actually is downcast, the student who is actually being bullied, is not likely to respond in this way. The student who actually is being picked on may very likely not have not come back with the with these kinds of statements like you're you're shaming me or or I feel unsafe. It's more likely to be the students who are are sharper. And the preparation to the problem is that we the respect of a position is fast either eroding or gone in our culture. I guess the epitome of that is the position of President of the United States. If you just look at what people in general think of a world president, he's it's always the tend to be the national leader, the national scapegoat or copy or he's to be picked on. He's to be ridiculed. And that is symptomatic representative something in the broader culture. And so the people who carry wolves are not respected because they're in the wolf. And that does affect all of us. And so, in fact, it can actually be counterproductive. That is, it can almost be that when you step into the wolf, that becomes a problem rather than an asset. Because wearing the hat of an authority figure now puts you in a position where you are to be not taken seriously, disrespected. Anything that you expect of me is problematic because it's coming from, from your wolf. And so we traditionally, previous generations, you know what they said, if you, if the teacher says it, you do it. If you get a spanking at school, you get one at home. You've heard of that in previous generations. Well, that is not the case now. And I think this, this has shifted so fast that we didn't recognize what was going on. I'm not sure what else to say about the symptoms. Maybe somebody else has to add on the symptoms. Well, I would just say teaching our children personal responsibility. They're just saying it's not my fault and I, I can't help the situation. Being Teaching them proactivity and helping them understand. <clears throat> they always have a choice to make in a situation. Every time you are not, uh, you're not at, at the whim of the circumstances. And I think it's important when we teach our children uh, to respect the rules until there's an absolute reason not to. And even in that context, you still respect the rules. Uh, and so as a teacher, I want to be respected. That is a goal of that. I want my students to, I want to have their heart, and, and, and I want them to have my heart. Uh, but, but, but I still need to teach my children to respect someone who's in authority, period. It's just, it's so important. Um, and that then rolls into the workforce, that rolls more importantly into the church, respecting the leaders and leadership of the church, etc. Because of, because of who they are, or not because of who they are maybe, but because of where they're at. And that's just so critical for us as parents to teach our children. I might add another comment. 
I just recently came across the term that names something that we could recognize is reality with young children. It was the term counter-will. It's the term they used to apply to it. And what they mean is that, you all know the case, take with a very young child. If a very young child will not re respond to someone to whom he or she is not attached. And so, at a very young age, sometimes this is mommy's baby for a while, and then it might be daddy's baby, and, uh, and a child at a certain age, if you try to hand them off to somebody else, you know, they, they, don't want, uh, they don't want to hand it off to that child. They don't want somebody else to hold it. Or a, a three-year-old, typically, if you just, as a stranger, walk up to a three-year-old and, and gave them directions to do something, they probably won't do it. You know, who are you? And why would I do this for you? And that is a protection. Little children, little children who would do it, respond to anybody, do anything, anybody tells them to do. You know, come here, get the car for me, I'll take you for a ride. That is a problem. And so there is an aspect where, where we tend to respond to a person based on what our connection to that person is. Who are you and where did you come from? And why are you asking them to do this? And is this appropriate to, to do this? You don't, you don't rationalize that. That's just the way you respond. And so that comes back to this applies throughout life, actually, as you get older. You know how you yourself respond. If you just be asked by somebody to do something uh, cold, somebody you don't know, you, you might wonder, who are you? Why are you asking me to do this? And so what is happening is that in some cases, we have school-age students who actually the feeling they have is, who are you? And why would I do this for you? And it's almost like we need to, we need to think more about getting their hearts and how we get their hearts. So that in an appropriate way, when I say getting their hearts, I don't mean stealing or becoming parents. But we have to give more attention to how this student actually will, how you can connect with them so that you can proceed to teach. Thank you. Question number eight. Who is responsible to call out error among board members? The chairman, the pastoral advisors, what are your thoughts? Well, that's kind of, that's yeah, a difficult question. Um, who holds the man at the top responsible? Um, I think in terms of the board, it begins with just sitting around and, and following Matthew 18. If there's someone on the board that has some issues. Well, first of all, we have to define what the, the, the question says, called out error. What error are we talking about? Simple administrative error, or moral sin, it depends what what level we're on here. But basically, sitting around and following Matthew 18 as a board and, and talking about it is the first, I think, probably the first place to start. Keep it simple. Don't blow something out of proportion. Um, but sometimes these face-to-face -face meetings where you have to sit and talk something out are difficult, but that's what God calls us to, especially as leaders. Um, if it's the chairman, um, I'm not sure. Get, get your pastors involved, etc. But you're still following Matthew 18. You're still sitting down and talking about it because that's so so critical. 
And I think that the same thing applies to uh, the school board talking to a parent um, that's distrusting a teacher. Uh, and they're, they're concerned, they've got a problem, and they want to talk about it. Uh, maybe have that three-way conversation where the teacher sits down, the parent sits down, and the school board sits down, and we sit and talk. And though, again, those are tough, tough times, but uh, those kind of meetings usually give clarity to the issue and often, often clear the air because it forces everyone to directly talk to the person that they're disgruntled with and we can see both perspectives and we've got a third party involved and we can get through this thing. Um, so I think for the most part, those kind of talks will get you through uh, those kind of difficulties. Uh, someone has to call that, someone has to say, let's talk and make it happen. Um, but the basic principle of Matthew 18 falls through here, or follows through here. Um, and of course, that continued process of if you can't resolve it there, bring another brother, uh, bring someone else in perhaps into the conversation. But just talk about it, talk about it. Uh, communication is extremely important. Somewhat related to that, what is the appropriate non-threatening way for a married school board member to relate to single lady teachers? I don't know if this question is in the context of routine, the visits to the classroom, if it's coming in to address an issue, a particular issue. But I think about personal space, protecting personal space. So when I come into my teacher's rooms, I may come in to the door and stand just inside the door. I may sit on a student's desk, but I keep a good amount of space normally. Keep your conversation to the professional. Talk about what you're there to talk about. If your single lady staff member has personal problems to work out, it may be your responsibility to help her with that, but you're wise to delegate it to someone else. Or have your wife come along in a separate, a separate uh, meeting for those kinds of, of issues. So keep it, remember what the, what the task is here. Why does this school exist? What are we trying to do here at school? And talk about those things. So it might depend on the issue. Uh, there may be times when you should bring your wife along. But I would stress, I would stress, if, 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 again, if this is a reoccurring type of visit, that you know, whether you're the administrator or a board member, that your wife has a relationship with the single teachers, whether it's outside of school or whether she's in school some, however. And take every opportunity when you are talking to the you're going to teach her to, to mention your wife if there's, if there's a place for that. I think it's just helpful to, to, to let them know that your relationship there is good. All right, let's go to some technology-related questions. In light of the dangers mentioned with technology, why do we as plain people think we can safely use it when even some non-Christians see it as a tool of the devil. Will our approach be sustainable for oncoming generations? Well, it's always uh, 
dangerous to talk about some of these things in a big group because I don't know where you're coming from. Um, but just a quick question and a quick answer. I would say I don't know that we will do well if we don't take stands together on this. Um, and I talked about screens yesterday. Now, I want to be clear that I don't think anybody is hollering about the danger of PowerPoint. That's not the issue. And I'll go as far to say it's really not computers either. You don't carry your computer around everywhere you go. Now, you've seen me carry my computer around here, okay? But not everywhere I go. When I go to recess, I don't carry that thing with me. When I sit at the supper table, I don't carry it with me. I don't take it with me to bed. But there is a device that we do that with, or at least many people do. So I think we have to be realistic um, with that. And perhaps we should be open to the Amish approach. Now, I don't know, again, don't know your backgrounds here, um, but for many of us, we look at the older Amish sort of, well, you know, those are, they are so inconsistent. Because you know, they don't have cars, but they sure use them. But let me suggest that maybe that's a very consistent position. <clears throat> the cars are not controlling them as much as they do us. There's still a difference if you have to call a driver than if you just have it sitting in the, in the driveway. And, and so maybe on some of these technology issues, yeah, we're going to use them, but we're not going to have them as handy. If you have to walk to the end of the lane to use the telephone, and you say, well, that's inconsistent. Not necessarily. If that helps them control the telephone rather than the telephone controlling them, then that's, a, that's the most consistent position I can think of. Um, so maybe in our thinking, we have to be careful uh, how, how we think about it. But I do think that we have to think about this as communities and where we need to draw some lines. And we can draw lines as individuals as well. Um, if this is actually a tool that we're using, and not entertainment. I know that's a huge thing. Is it entertainment or is it a tool? And we don't take our tools to the bedroom, do we? Uh, or are they our idols? Are they our best friends? The first thing we touch in the morning, the first thing, last thing we touch at night, it's what we talk to the most. When we get bored, that's where we go to. Uh, if that's the case, then we have to be realistic. Those aren't tools. That, that's something more than a tool. Um, and I'm not convinced, like I said, I don't think there's a Mennonite exemption here. Um, if we use internet for entertainment, it won't be any different than those who accept a TV for entertainment. No, I, um, I'm one that enjoys understanding technology and working with it, at least, at least the production of it, and that's our laptops and our computers. I think there's a big difference between the laptop that Matt was talking about that, that I take to work and I do and I produce upon. Cell phones are virtually just consumables. It's consumption, that's all it is, virtually. And so there's a big difference between production and consumption. Um, and I, so we need to ponder how much technology we use in our classrooms and I use some. And I think there's a place for that. Um, but as ministers, if our children go to a school that uses technology from grade one to grade 12 in a fairly 
about strong way. There's all kinds of neat educational games and flashcards you can do with a tablet. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. They will learn. It'll work. But us ministers can't touch that with a 10-foot pole with the foolishness of preaching. If that's how they are trained to learn. And they go to church and all they hear is an old man up front talking. It's not, we are not going to be able to reach them by God's primary method of communicating truth, the spoken word. And so I, I guess I, 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 I just ask you to really consider how much screens we actually use in our classrooms as learning tools that are the prime, that the technology is the primary method of, of, of style of communication. Uh, how they're learning is through this little device. I think we're in scary territory when we use that all the time. It's going to work. They're going to learn those facts. But how's it shaping how they think and, and how they uh, bring in truth for, for the rest of their lives, really? Thinking, <clears throat> thinking about books. A book is something that has something you call a spine. It's bound. That you can pick it up and you can open it. It has pages and you can look at it. And should we use books? Well, at one extreme, we have the Bible. That's a book. It, has, it can be able to put it on the shelf. And then we have manuals that can be used to repair a car. That's a book. And then we have story books of various kinds. And then we can start moving the other direction. We have romance and novels. And we have books, I assume, that are out there somewhere that, uh, that help you to understand the occult and magic manuals, and then we go to the extreme of pornography, all that can be printed in a book. And so there is somewhat of an analogy there, this, this thing that you hold in your hand, what is it actually? Recently, we had a series of brothers' meetings in which we discussed Gary Miller's uh, tech uh, tsunami book. And someone commented, we are not here uh, in this meeting, he said. We're not here because of the invention of the wheel. We're not here because of the invention of a new tool. If this was simply another tool, we wouldn't be having this, this meeting. There's something else to put here. Actually, we, I lived in the day when schools were being opened in that era in the 70s when they, nationwide, they were opening at three, an average of three per day across the country. And commonly it was said, why would you send your children to the pagans to be educated if you expect them to serve in, the, in a Christian life? And so we should teach our own children. <clears throat> You know the story of David, he was the king. And he was a rather effective king, well liked by his people. But there was an Absalom. Uh, what did Absalom do? Somebody tell us. He stole the hearts of the people. So David had the title of king but he lost the hearts to significant numbers of his people, and you know the story. And the situation we're in today is that we may be continuing to operate these schools and 
have a good curriculum, but we don't have our children's hearts. They've been stolen. They've been actually, yes, stolen. And there is a great, uh, a barbarian, barbarians are people who move in and they have no respect for anything civilization has, has created. They will burn down libraries. They will destroy things that have been treasured and valued for generations. Now we know that there are many pagan things that should have been destroyed, but they don't destroy them because they're pagan. They destroy them because they have no respect for anything that stood before. And so we really are in an age, as I mentioned yesterday, where, the, where instead of us moving into a pagan culture, the pagan culture has moved among us. We really are living among pagans. We're in a pagan society. And pagans have idols. And one of the most powerful idols is this, 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 this thing, the hushta. And I, I use, I'm a bit like the man who went to the uh, store and bought the chainsaw because the storekeeper told him you all had this saw faster than your hand saw and your crosscut saw and your axe. So he took it home and used it. He came back and he said, you know, that thing really isn't, uh, doesn't saw any faster than the other saw. In fact, it's rather, rather somewhat heavier and uh, I'm not sure I want it anymore. And so he said, well, let's try it out. So they went out back where there was a log and the storekeeper pulled forward and the thing started up and the man said, what's that funny noise? <laughs> and so I use this phone, uh, I do some texts and I, I call, I check my email, but there's a lot of funny noises that I've never heard. <laughs> And what's, <clears throat> I'd like us to think a bit about the boys' camp phenomenon. We know that our boys should go to the war boys' camps, Ohio, uh, Maryland, Bald Eagle. And it's recognized that something special needs to be done for these boys. It's just not working at home. And so great effort is put into these boys camps, and there's a measured amount of, of success as these boys actually interact life on life with people in the real world, in the woods, uh, technology free. That can only be done with a very few people. That's a very, very great effort to accomplish, accomplish that. But what we are finding ourselves in is a position where instead of Absalom, the, the, uh, and it, technology is a word we use, and it's a bit of a smokescreen because technology suggests, suggests tools. And tools are problematic. There is, there is, uh, that's a whole area over there where when you use tools, that does change the work atmosphere, that does change occupations and so on. That is the subject. But in addition to the tool aspect of this, it's the problem. It is, it is, Idolatry, pure, pure, pure and simple. The, the, it's a virtual world. There is, where your treasure is, there is your, what? Heart also. And it's no, we don't have to wonder whether that phone is a treasure to people that have it. 
good question to ask someone would be, how long would it take you to notice it if you mislay your phone? Would it take six hours? Would it take, how long would it take? And until you would notice that you don't have it. And so we have, we have an idolatry, we have hearts of children, and these children are coming into our classrooms, their heart's not, their heart is not there, and the treasure is not there, and the mind is not there, and we're trying to work with children whose who's, uh, thinking and hearts are, are elsewhere. And we really need to give attention to gaining, keeping, having open, open hearts. And there ought to be a freedom of talking about the name. These are the things I do today. And presumably, presumably, if the heart is really open, the young person should be able to freely talk to the parent. Oh, my message is today, these were the themes of them, and this is how I feel about them. And, uh, and then uh, this activity, I played, I played this game for two hours and uh, didn't get my homework done. And this is how I feel about it. Well, yes, you can, you can chuckle. And there's no way they would talk about that. Well, that's, that's a problem. And you can tell when you walk into a home where there's, where there's openness and where there's, where there's freedom. So the heart is what we need to think about. Okay, good answers, but will not be the end of the discussion. One more question here. How much effect do normal computer games have on student performance? I'm not sure what normal computer games are. Um, maybe it's offline computer games. If we're seriously calling these things tools, then I just don't think it's a tool for a child. I mean, we're very comfortable doing that. Well, maybe it's because of government, I don't know. The government says you can't drive till 16 if you live in Pennsylvania. Uh, we don't give cars to children. Um, why do we give computers or phones? So, I'll just stick my neck out here. Um, just don't have any. Don't play any until they're in junior high. Don't, don't be on a computer until you're in junior high. Seventh grade. If there's a need for your child to have something, some research, I mean, maybe that you can either stand there and watch them peck around and get frustrated or you just do it for them. Um, either way, but don't worry about your children. We want to make sure they don't get left behind. <laughs> they're they're going to learn it. That's not, a, that's not the issue. The issue is don't let them learn too quickly. And you're going to have to be the parent. You can't expect them to say, well, you know, do you want to play a game with me or do you want to play on the computer? I mean, perhaps they will choose with you. I, I don't know. Um, but Yeah, I think some of it, if we're going to use it, at least don't use it when they're children. Maybe that's too simplistic. 
Stanford, could you tell us how does a virtual game work out there in the online and the virtual world with people? What are some of the elements of some of those games? All right, I was, I was telling them back in our pre-meeting about some things, experiences I had. The moderator's not really supposed to uh, answer questions, but I will here to wrap this up. Um, first of all, I do know of a teacher who quit. And his reason that he gave for quitting, although I'm sure it was more convoluted than this, but his reason he gave for quitting is he was tired of his students coming to school tired because they were staying up late playing computer games. And I assume, since that was about eight years ago, that that was offline computer games, for whatever it's worth. About two years ago, I had, uh, well, let me say this, that I, I really believe that, that you all, as leaders in your community, should really go home and lead the discussion about this. Because what seems to be the concern in this is that in our homes it is happening too often that children are just in, on the sofa in the evenings curled up. And this is happening. And for whatever reason, which kind of amazes most of us probably, is happening more than we realize. Mom or dad is not speaking into that. It is just happening. And so what is happening on the sofa with the smartphone? A couple years ago, I noticed a, a number of my boys, I think there were three or four of them, coming to school, and they had these animate discussions about what was going on the night before, and, and I soon understood that this was, a, this was something going on in the virtual world. And so I began to ask questions, and I understood they were playing the game Clash of Clans, which is a game where you can um, get on your phone, sign on together, and so in virtual reality, you are all now connected. Three or four of my students are connected in cyberspace, and they are a clan playing a game destroying other clans. And I assume there are other uh, people out there. Potentially, they could be a clan fighting another school clan somewhere. I don't know how that all works. Um, and they could buy powers for money. And they would buy powers that would allow them to cast spells, witchcraft. I asked them about that. Are you sure? Oh, it's just a simple little spell, you know. You cast it on and they turn white and wither up, something stupid like that. In their, in their minds, it was nothing. I, I asked our bishop what he thought, and he thought it was something. <laughs> uh, but in their minds, it was nothing. And so I, I, as I was talking to these boys, every morning they would come. It was the first thing they would talk about in the morning, really, really wrapped up in that. And so I said, well, how many of your dads know you're doing this? Well, they were very noncommittal in their response. And so I told them, I said, well, I'm going to go talk to your dads. Now, there's always the question when you have an issue of how much do you go blazing into this thing or you're going to stomp out this fire and then lose their hearts, maybe, like we've been talking about. And so I did. I started asking dads, and, and, and oh, well, yeah, well, we think they... I was amazed at the response that I was getting from the dads. Well, they, thought, they told me they'd look into it. And within a week, the boys came to school. Yeah, shut that one down. <laughs> and that one was over. 
Dads became aware and shut it down, and I was glad for that. And the boys didn't have too bad of an attitude, really, about it. But all of a sudden, it kind of fell silent. And the big question in my mind was, did I really handle that right? Did I just jump in there and squash it? And now the thing went undercover. I didn't know. But in about three months, I heard the conversations going again. They found another game, kind of similar to it. And now they're doing that. And so the real issue is still sitting in the couch in the evenings doing this. And the other thing that I wish you would know when you go home to talk to your community about it, it's not a cure-all, but when you take something away, what are you going to replace? I don't know if you are aware that we are right now in the world, in 2020, in the middle of the biggest board game revolution of all time. Did you know that? And the reason is because these tech guys, like Matt was talking about, are realizing this. And so they are intentionally building board games with relationships in mind to replace the solo, solitary thing going on in the corner. And these board games are designed not like Monopoly. Monopoly is a badly designed board game because Mr. Trump, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Vanderbilt, takes all the properties and kicks everybody out and he's big king and, and the other players are left there, they'll, they'll never, never get, never have a chance. The new style board games are designed to keep all players involved until the very end and then someone suddenly becomes the winner. So competition is good and they intentionally work those components into the board game. The other thing they do is they intentionally keep warfare out and keep the competition economics based. And so you really ought to go home and look into some of those games. I promised my children that I would, I would uh, budget $50 a year to buying one of these games so that we could play them. Now, the, there is a downside to it, and that is that these board games do. They still, they still wear out, and now we need another one. That thing you still can't get away of. But uh, just an idea of, of, a, of a replacement to think about. There are other options besides just sitting on the sofa with the phone. And you might have to get off your computer and go play it with them. Okay? All right. Anything else? If my children are sitting here, so maybe I'm in, in the hot seat here. I have to get off the computer too. Right? Um, but I, I would just urge you, us to think about that. Um, if we have internet available at home and we don't know if our children are on or not, guys, we've lost it. I'm convinced. So we need to know what's happening. And we can do this. It's not something impossible. It's not something too hard. If we just man up, we can do this. And I think, yeah, if our children's hearts, if we don't have them, we've lost it. And that's not a new struggle. I remember Dad saying recently, he's appalled at how many, and this is not my generation, he's talking about his generation, how many didn't have, don't have the hearts of their children? But then you bring in internet into the mix of that, it's not gonna work. So it's not internet's fault, really, but yet we can't, but, but even make space. We, we, can, we can make space, um, and we have to do it for ourselves as well. Sometimes we have cast issues moral light and said, well, is it right or wrong? And I think we have to ask a better question 
Is this, is this the best use of my time? I would like to emphasize that for those of us older than 30 that use such a term as a tool, I fear that young people, they don't get it. What do you mean using it as a tool? What are you talking about? That's the, <clears throat> the one would say live. It's like the, you know, the story you probably heard of one fish, he asked another fish one morning, how's the water? And the other fish said, what's water? That the, the air that you're breathing, we normally don't think about it. There is air in this room now, since I mentioned it, it's wonderful, isn't it? We have air here to breathe, but it's just the air we breathe. And to the younger people, this is the air they breathe. Tool? No, they don't even know what you're talking about, that concept. And I really think that we need to go from here thinking. It really is a heart issue. There's a sense in which uh, there's redemption in anything, and this availability of this of this uh, kind of connection to the occult through joint group games, this this possibility of living a life in the virtual world, they call it the virtual world, having a life out there that is totally disconnected from real life is is forcing us to give attention to what we really need to give attention to all the time, and that is our connections, our relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, stop. You have to say, like a dad should say to a son, let's, let's do this. Come, let's do this. Mm -hmm. uh, come and we will play, we'll do some activities, we'll play some games, we'll do some real things together. And so I really think the challenge is, do, you, do we have any idea what is going on? If we don't, we're like David, and somebody else is actually you know, saying, come to me with your problems, I've got the answers to you, and we will lose your heart. We will lose the hearts of our children. Okay, I think we're gonna conclude our panel. Thank you very much for answering our questions. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.